0: So listen, welcome. We are in our series of Philippines. We're actually literally at the halfway mark, uh, in the book. Um, so we're at chapter three, if you want to turn there. We've been getting some great feedback from this series. I hope you're enjoying. It's a, it's an absolutely amazing book of a, of a church that we can look at and actually want to replicate, want to model a lot of the ways that they were actually doing as a church. And today Paul is dealing with an issue that was invading the church and an issue that invades the church today and invades our lives and just such a relevant issue. One probably lots of us are familiar with and yet one we constantly need to look at and assess how we're doing in this area. So finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord's. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I just want to start with a video. This is an actor who is a great actor. He's one of my favourite actors and I love a lot of his films. I I believe that I had to become a famous... You know, idea, and get all the stuff that people dream about, and accomplish a bunch of uh, a bunch of things that uh, you know that that look like success. In order to give up my attachment to those things, it's been part of the evolution of uh, ego is is to uh, spend your uh, first half of your life acquiring and adding, thinking you can add to yourself, and. And it looks great. I mean, it looks great when you got a cool car and you got good, nice clothes, and you know, and you're uh, and you've done something that people admire. But it can never fulfill you. You can never be happy. You know, what I mean, it's not it's happiness where happiness. Comes. Sorry, a slight cut off there. It's not where happiness comes from, is what he says at the end. There. Uh, now, Jim Carrey is a you know a world-renowned actor. And for a lot of people, as we look at this actor, we would say that he's made it. He's got it all. He's got money. He's got fame. He's got recognition. He's sought after. People want him in in their films. You know, he hangs out in all the right cool circles of actors. And um, for a lot of us, we look at what he has, and we think, surely, these are the things that are going to bring true happiness and joy into our lives surely there's no reason that he could not be happy with the cards he's been dealt yeah and this is how the world views it and yet we hear him in this video he's been quite troubled Jim Carrey and um, he's gone through a lot and he's saying in this video listen it's what I did it's all about acquiring this is what the culture was about It was chasing after money, it was chasing after things, it was recognition, it was an ego, he says. But none of it could bring joy or satisfaction that he was looking at, or happiness. And he looks like he's got it all, but we hear it was empty. And I don't fully know what Jim Carrey's philosophy is in life, but I do know that the culture that we live in is a culture that are searching for happiness. It's a culture that is searching for meaning and satisfaction. And for many of us, I think we actually think that these things can be found in things or achievements. And you know, I think so often these things in our lives become a bit of a fixation. They become what we think is going to save us, our saviours, The thing that will rescue us from our current life circumstance or where our current life is where we're at. And I think they become the thing that we start to worship or idolize or obsess over. And I want to say this was no different in Paul's day. It was actually no different in the church there. Paul, as we're going to see in this passage, he was going to be addressing an issue that, as I said, just keeps coming up throughout scripture that Paul continues to address in many of the churches that he has established and that he speaks into and he addresses this issue head on and really it's all about what do we put our confidence in what are the areas that we put our confidence in that we're looking for value And he starts to address this, and he looks at how he used to live, and he looks at how he now lives. He looks at what he used to idolize in his life, and we're going to see how he can count it all as loss, okay? So we're just going to run through this passage as we go. So verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love the fact that Paul starts with finally. As I said, we're sort of halfway through the letter here. It's good to know that as a preacher, <laughs> we often come up with this. It's, it's that, I want to catch your attention, finally. But it, we all know it's not the final point. <laughs> There's more to be said. Paul is just trying to grasp people's attention here. This isn't the final point in this book. He's only halfway through. But he wants to affirm again this key theme that runs through this book of Philippians. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You know, we hear it. I say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. And he wants to affirm we are to find our joy in Jesus. Paul, as we know at this point, he's under house arrest. And for him to say this gives a real authenticity to his current situation. And he continues to say it. And I wonder, he's telling the church it. It gives authenticity, but there's something here. He keeps saying it. And I think there's something we can learn here as we meditate, as we think about our lives. As we proclaim truth over our lives, it becomes real, yeah? And I think Paul keeps saying it because it's hard. He's under house arrest. So he needs to keep reminding himself of the truth. Rejoice in the Lord's. Rejoice. I'm going to say it again, rejoice in the Lord's. Because for him, this is as important to him as it is to the church here in Philippi. And we know that this, this is a sort of sense of a call to worship for Paul as he beckons the church to have joy in their Savior through all circumstances. And it reminds me a little bit of John 15. Verse 11, it says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. So the thing about this joy that we're talking about here, this isn't something that we have to create. This isn't something that we have to put on the Christian smile of and go, "Woohoo! we're always happy. This joy that Paul's talking about is a supernatural joy. In John here, it tells us that it's Christ's joy that is imparted to us. It's the joy of knowing him. It's the joy of the gospel. It's supernatural. And there's this promise here that if we remain in him, if we stay close, if we rejoice in him, our joy will continue. That's the first point. Paul goes on. And this whole section really is all about our confidence, and false confidence and true confidence. Okay, his language here is quite harsh, and we're just going to look a little bit at that. So we've got verse two: Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh a picture of a very vicious, malicious dog there. And and actually, dogs don't get a good rap in the Bible, okay? Whenever dogs are referred to, it's it's difficult for us in our culture because dogs are treated really like children, aren't they? We spend a lot of money on them, they're man's best friend, we love them. And yet, in the Bible and in that culture, dogs were not treated in the same way, okay? And it's important to understand What Paul's saying here, the language is brutal, because he's trying to get the church here to understand what's going on. And what you've got is you've got a group of Jews, Judaizers, okay, that are within the church here. They've become Christians, some of them. But they're so used to living under the law. And he wants to use this language... To show the extreme nature of how he views what's going on in the church. And when he uses this word dog, it is a word to insult. That's what it was used for. In fact, this word was really used by the Jewish race to describe those of mixed race. Samaritans were called dogs. Okay, There was something here about not being clean. Scavengers. Okay, It wasn't a good term to be addressed by. So the surprising detail that we get in here is who Paul is talking to. Because normally this is Jews using this word against Gentiles. Okay? They would call the Gentiles dogs. Paul, as a Jew, is using this to his fellow Jews. He's calling them dogs. And it's because of what they're doing the extreme nature to what Paul sees, he sees them undermining the gospel of God in the church. Because they come in and they're suggesting to people that they need to be circumcised to please God. It's not just about having faith in Jesus. There's something else that you need to do to please God. God. And these guys were so used to, they come from this culture of living under the law. The Levitical law. And this was a law that God had given. So you can imagine, this is actually quite hard to go from one culture to another. But Paul is so clear here. He calls them evildoers. They're not doing good. The things that they're asking people to do, Paul sees as evil. This language is just so strong. It would have shocked you. He doesn't mince his words, Paul, here. He wants to be absolutely clear that any doctrine that undermines the gospel is bad news. And he goes on to call them mutilators of the flesh. Again, it's because they're asking people to go through circumcision. Circumcision. And you know, I want to say this, the first sign, basically what they're doing is it's Jesus plus this, okay? And the gospel says, no, it's it's funny, the message this morning has all been, it's all about him. It's all about him and what he's done. And I think as a church, this is so important because in our own lives, so often we add things where we get our value from. We chase after things that we think are going to bring that happiness and joy. And I want to say the first sign that as a church we might have fallen into legalism is that we lose our joy. So it's funny that Paul starts with this joy to then address legalism because if you're a church under legalism, the problem is, is that it's all about proving your worth. It's all about proving... And trying to attain this standard. And yet the gospel of Christ is actually recognition that it's nothing about what we have done. There's nothing to prove. And so there's a real joy that comes as we live in that reality. It's nothing we've done. It's all about Jesus. But legalism is the exact opposite, isn't it? Legalism means we end up striving for God's approval and it makes us miserable because you know what folks, we can never measure up to God. We can never measure up. So it brings disappointment, it brings sadness, it brings that guilt and that shame. It's one of the first signs that we aren't living in the truth of the gospel. Phil Moore says this, he says, Legalism isn't a hybrid of Christianity. It's no Christianity at all. Paul's very clear there is no place for this in the church. Verse 3 says, "We, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Bible's clear again when it comes to circumcision that actually as Christians... We've gone through circumcision. Praise God. It's a circumcision of the heart. Literally, as you ask Jesus to come into your life, the great surgeon has replaced our heart of stone for our heart of flesh. Okay? We're no longer prone or inevitably going to worship created things. Our desire has been changed. Our hearts have been transformed utterly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Physical circumcision is not a requirement of following Jesus. Praise God for that. And Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the outward signs. And we need to understand Why Paul treats that with such contempt? Okay? It's because of legalism creeping in. Because it undermines the gospel. He will not have it in the church. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews... As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Paul, as I said, is addressing the Judaizers in the church. And he uses the only language that they will understand. And he says, if you think you can find your confidence in your self-righteousness, in doing things, then I have more reason than any of you to be confident And he starts, it's almost like his resume that is laid out there for the church to see. And to these Judaizers who want to bring law into the church, he starts by looking at his resume. So he starts in verse 4 with talking about his birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. This is Paul reminding the Judaizers that he is a genuine Jew from birth. Okay, he's followed the Abrahamic covenants in obeying eighth day circumcision. His parents were both Jews. He says he was an Israelite, okay? He was a true Israelite. He wasn't a child um, of a proselyte. He is referring to himself with this term because it's meant to speak to the Judaizers, to say, look, I'm part of the nation of God." The people of God who were set apart of Israel. I'm one of you. He goes on. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He's bringing in his heritage, his family backgrounds. It was impeccable. Now he wasn't from the royal line of David. But as we know for Benjamin, he was the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel. And it was this tribe that the first king... Of Israel was chosen from King Saul. Surprise, surprise, Paul was Saul. He was named Saul. There was a pride as a, as a, as a tribe there that the first king was Saul. And actually, this tribe were well, the only tribe to stick with King David as the kingdoms separated. It was the tribe of Benjamin. And so he's saying, Look at my pedigree. From the tribe of Benjamin. His racial purity was impressive. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only were his parents both practicing Jews, but Paul spoke and he wrote in Aramaic and Hebrew. He had been raised, and we find this out from Paul, with the best schooling and etiquette. He'd been educated by a scholar. Gamaliel, okay, he was the best educated. He had the qualifications. (coughs) It's a bit like going to Eton for Paul. And so he starts by looking at his background, his pedigree. And then he moves on to looking at his achievements. He says, if that's not enough, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The thing about Pharisees, they were the ultimate law keepers. They actually had 613 laws that they brought in. And for him to be able to say he lived blamelessly under the law as a Pharisee would have spoken to the Judaizers. Boom. They took the laws of God and they elevated them to another level. They were the strictest sect when it came to living by the law. In fact, Pharisee means separated one. They were so strict, they couldn't eat with Gentiles. Purity was their entire goal in life. He says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was so, so zealous about what he believed that this led him to persecute anyone who could damage his belief in Yahweh. Hence, he killed many in the church of God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He regarded himself as without fault before conversion. He was an absolute radical, Paul. This wasn't Paul, by the way, saying he was sinless. This wasn't Paul saying he was perfect, but he says he was blameless. As I said, the Pharisees had 613 laws that they were to live in. But they still had to go to the temple. They still had to uh, offer sacrifices and prayers. But actually living under that law, he's saying, I was blameless. And so here we have the Apostle Paul's credentials. And I have to be honest, we look at these and we might think, do you know what, they're impressive. But I doubt many of us sitting here, when it comes to Paul's achievements and his (coughs) backgrounds, we can empathise or even think about competing with his achievements. But I think we all, no matter who we are, have things in our lives that we think elevate our self-worth. And that might mean we're looking at things in our lives that other people might look on us more favourably or things that we think God might start to look on us more favourably for. For you it might be with other people, It might be looking at your career success, it might be the wealth that you have, it might be your personal appearance, it might be your intellect, it might be your relationships or your friendships that you have with people, it might be your personality, it might be the football team that you support. It might be your family or the experiences that you've gone through in life. There are probably things in your life that you think elevate you with other people, that people look on and their opinion of you changes. And there are probably things in your life when it comes to our relationship with God that we do or we put in place. That makes us think God will love us more. Because we do this. And I have to be honest. When you look deep. And you ask yourself this question. This is such a challenging issue. In my life. And I would expect in many. And I was just thinking about. My last few weeks. And. I run a business. And I remember I went recently. I got invited by my bank. To a. To a sort of four course lunch and I'm sitting there with all of these other people who've been invited to the bank and I met these guys who had been on Dragon's Den and they started their own gin company and they've turned over three million in their first year and I'm sitting chatting to them and I was just so aware that you're sitting around these tables and it's, it's really all about look at me look at my business, this is how big it is, this is how successful it is And there's this sense, I just reflected and thought, it's so hot. There's this desire in me to want to prove my seat at the table, to prove my success amongst these other people. And it comes out in the conversations. And I thought, it also happens when we meet with church leaders. How's your church going? Well, we've got this going on. We've got this growth. We've got this going on. And you know, the motiv- the motivation can so easily swing into, this is why you need to take me seriously, guys. It can swing into pride. It can swing into check me out. My self-righteousness, my worth is wrapped up in what you see on the outside, Legalism creeps into the church ever so subtly. It creeps into our lives ever so subtly. Paul was so harsh with it that we need to take this issue ultra-serious. And I was thinking about this, I thought, what are some of the things in church life where as a church we need to watch is legalism creeping into the church? I've mentioned that, actually, if our joy's gone, there's probably something very wrong. Something legalistic has crept into the church. But I thought, if we as a church, if you're defining your relationship with Jesus based on the disciplines that you have in your week, how much time you spend reading your Bible, how many times you get up early or have those worship times or... How many times you read the Bible with your kids as they go into bed? Does that make you feel, "Ah, okay, God's pleased with me? When we start to separate our spiritual life from our natural life and we separate them out, I think legalism is creeping into the church. When we look at our lives and we realise the only people we're hanging out with are saved people. Look at the Pharisees. They didn't mix with Gentiles. This legalistic bunch of people would not mix with others. They had separated themselves. The very thing that God has called us to do is to not separate ourselves, but to go and be in the world. To go and bring his good news. So if we look at our lives and every area is based on church folk Folks, there's something wrong in our lives. If we live with a constant condemnation over the mistakes that we make, with that guilt and shame, then I want to suggest legalism has crept into our lives. It's not to say there isn't regret. It's not to say there isn't that point of going, Lord, forgive me. But if it becomes condemnation. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's telling us here that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he didn't just need to repent of his rebellion against God. Actually, he needed to repent of his reliance on man made religion as well. And he tells us here in this passage that he needed to treat his religious achievements as loss. Another word for loss is liability. You see, these achievements that he had been working on, they hadn't just failed to set him right with God, but they had become an absolute liability by giving him a false confidence that God was pleased with him without needing Jesus to be his saviour. They become not just a loss... An absolute liability. Because it produces a false confidence in us before God. And he uses this word. It's not a great translation. It's the word rubbish. I count them as rubbish. And this word is skubalon in the Greek. Which is a strong word again. It's excrement. He wants to shock people. He wants them to know that all of those things, all of those achievements that look very impressive are crap. It's dog poo. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to wake us up to the stench of legalism in our own lives. And it reminds me of a verse in Isaiah which says all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. God tells us that actually he's offended when we try to gain forgiveness, acceptance or approval from him through our own religious efforts. And when we look at the history of the church, folks, we see that this isn't just a first century issue But this issue of legalism has been there in every single century since. Martin Luther, who was a reformer, a theologian, a monk in the 16th century, had this revelation from God as he was reading Scripture. And it was this revelation that his righteousness, his justification before God, was by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Faith alone in Christ Jesus. And this revelation that Luther had that brought a massive reformation because the church at the time were telling him, you've got to pay this money, you've got to do this, you've got to do this to get your sins forgiven. It changed the face of the church as he recognised what Paul is essentially saying here in this passage. Our own works, our own self-righteousness can never and will never put us into a position to impress God. They cannot ever earn our salvation. Because they're like filthy rags compared to Christ. But the gospel, the good news, is that Christ has bought our salvation through his death. And his resurrection on the cross. You see, he was perfect where we never could be. He was spotless and blameless and it was only ever him who could achieve our salvation from death. And so he comes with an offering this morning to us, folks. He offers us a gift. And it's a gift of his righteousness to us. And I want to say, when it comes to a gift, there's numerous ways we can respond. I think, obviously, within British culture, we tend to be... Oh, Lovely. Put it down there. I'll open it later. But actually our kids know how to do gifts. Okay? This gift isn't supposed to be passive. It's not supposed to be, oh, it's a lovely gift. Righteousness. Just there. It's not a passive thing. Actually, it's not even an active thing where we have to do something. What do we need to do to get the gift? Give me the next clue. This gift simply about receiving. It's about accepting. And it's through faith. It's receiving this gift of righteousness through faith. And I want to say faith pleases God, but it's not a way of earning the gift either. Oh, I've got faith, therefore, that's why I deserve the gift. No. Paul says that's not the case either. Faith is the way which we receive the gift. We receive this gift of righteousness of Christ in faith that we become righteous. My wife is quite adventurous, or she was, before she had back troubles. And um, before we uh, got together, she is very proud of one achievement. Or many, but... (laughs) But she went to Victoria Falls, and she decided to bungee jump off Victoria Falls. And I've seen the video of her doing this, and she tells the story really well. I should have got her up here telling it. But she, you can see it on the video. She gets up there on this stable platform, okay, that's been built in. And I've heard her talk about the fear of standing there on the edge of this platform. And, you know, every instinct in her body, and I think for most people is what are you doing? You crazy person. Every instinct is saying, don't jump. And you've got the guys who are there, who are running it, saying, come on, you can do this. Gina on to say, you do it. And what she had to do was put her confidence in this bungee cord. All of her confidence had to go into this bungee cords she had to trust that this cord was not going to snap or give way she had to trust that she was going to not hit the bottom that she'd bounce back up she had to actually physically jump off that platform that secure confidence of the platform she had to leave behind and jump And you know, it was impossible, or it is impossible, for her to keep hold of that platform, that confident, steady thing that she thinks is holding her weight, whilst making the jump. You cannot physically do both things at once. You have to jump off the platform and let go to experience whether that bungee cord is going to have the power to stop you from dying. And I don't know what your platforms or securities are in life. I don't know what you fall back on that give you your confidence. But I can say, I know from Tor, she doesn't regret jumping. She looks on that adventure with joy and, as I said, maybe just a little bit of pride. But she doesn't look back on with any regret. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that jump. I don't think anybody doing a bungee jump after they've done it, looks on it and goes, I so wish I hadn't done that, unless there was a tragic circumstance. But then they don't look back on it. But I'm thinking about Paul here. When we look at Paul's life, we don't hear a hint of regret from Paul anywhere on his decision to leave all of his achievements behind all of the things he found security on there was this sense of having to dive into the adventure of knowing christ and his glory and for paul we actually know that he went through an awful lot of suffering you know he was beaten he was betrayed he was shipwrecked and he was eventually killed no regret because it was all worth it because he saw something far bigger. He saw an eternal future and hope that he put all of his confidence in. And I want to say, unlike a bungee jump, the confidence that we can have in God, in Jesus, our firm foundation, a sure hope for our future glory. I want to end by saying, if, like me, you recognise areas of your life that you end up trying to prove yourself worth through, then I think God wants to say to you this morning that he loves you, and he has sent one who you can put your full confidence in. One who doesn't condemn you this morning, but I think one who just wants to redirect our gaze off self, Of trying to prove to the world our value. Unto one who deserves all of the honour and praise this morning. This gift of righteousness is here for you to take hold of this morning. Not because we've done anything to deserve it, but simply because he loves you. And as I said, if we choose to accept this gift, we don't leave this gift on the floor. We have to unwrap it. We have to enjoy it. I say, we have to. We will, living in it, enjoy it. And as we enjoy it, I think our confidence will grow. Our confidence in Christ do you know, this is a huge issue in our lives. I think for many of us, if we actually examine our lives, we can see the areas in our lives where we're putting our confidence in that is not Christ. Okay? And God wants to deal with it. I believe He wants to deal with it this morning. He's not content to just say, oh, yeah, go out, keep living the way that you're living. He wants us to live in the goodness of the gospel that you have nothing to prove this morning. You don't have anything to prove to him or to other people. You're precious to him. You're his sons and daughters. And he died for you so that you could know him. And I believe for many this morning, this is this sense of you're going to need prayer because you are recognized some of those things in your life that you think, I don't know how I'm going to give them up. How I'm going to jump off that platform that makes me feel secure. And God tells us right here, it's through the Spirit. Okay? And so as people pray for you, there's going to be a sense of the Spirit doing a work on you. It's a supernatural thing. That God's going to change your mindset. He's going to change that having to prove.